Welcome to The Living Dark, a podcast at the intersection of religion, horror, creativity, and the unknown. This podcast accompanies the newsletter of the same title at mattcarden.substack.com. Now, here's Matt. We're probably all familiar with the old joke, when you talk to God, that's prayer. When God talks to you, that's schizophrenia. For this inaugural episode of the Living Dark podcast, I decided to record a conversation with a friend whose work falls squarely in the middle of the epistemologically and culturally perilous territory defined by that joke. It was around 2010 that I first became aware of Jerry L. Martin and his book in progress titled God, an Autobiography. At the time, I was deep into blogging at my now-defunct website, Demon Muse, and I was developing my book, A Course in Demonic Creativity, from those materials. So thoughts about the experience of perceived communication from an external psychological or spiritual source were very much on my mind. And when I began reading excerpts and even entire chapters from the God Book at its website, I was transfixed. The official description that accompanied the book when it was eventually published in 2016 as God, an autobiography, as told to a philosopher, indicates why. Here's that description. The voice announced, I am God. For Jerry Martin, that encounter began a personal, intellectual, and spiritual adventure. He had not believed in God. He was a philosopher, trained to be skeptical, to doubt everything. So his first question was, is this really God talking? There were other urgent questions. What will my wife think? Why would God want to talk to me? Does God want me to do something? He began asking all the questions about life and death and ultimate things to which he, and all of us, have sought answers. Love and loss. Happiness and suffering. Good and evil. Death and the afterlife. The world's religions. The ways God communicates with us. How to live in harmony with God. God, an autobiography, tells the story of these mind-opening conversations with God. My fascination with this book and its author was increased early on when I learned that, in fact, Jerry Martin was a respected member of the intellectual establishment. Prior to the commencement of his God conversations, he spent 15 years as a tenured philosophy professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder, where he also served as chair of the philosophy department. In the late 80s and early 90s, he worked for the National Endowment for the Humanities and even filled the role of acting chairman. In the late 90s and early 2000s, he was a prominent figure in the national higher education landscape, serving as president of a Washington, D.C.-based policy organization that had been founded by such figures as Len Cheney, Saul Bellow, and David Reisman, 
to support liberal arts education. At one point, he was called upon to testify before Congress. As stated pithily on the back cover of God, an autobiography, quote, he stepped down from that career to write this book. Upon discovering Jerry's book in progress, I got involved in some of the online communications with him that appreciative readers were conducting through his website, and it swiftly became evident that he and I shared a similar set of concerns, although my own experiences have imparted a decidedly darker cast to my thoughts and writings about the perception of divine and demonic communication. Jerry and I also began conversing through Facebook, and I found him to be a forthrightly kind and generous-spirited correspondent. Which brings me to the current conversation. When I decided it was time to act on the idea for a podcast that I had been harboring since the launch of the Living Into the Dark newsletter, one of the first people I thought to contact was Jerry. I've regarded his book as an important one since before it was published, and his personal story as a fascinating one since I first learned of it. The account of how this book came to be written, and of what exactly Jerry's conversations with God were like, and of what the book actually says about God, the world's religions, and individual people's relationships with the divine, and the question of the book's significance for our collective understanding of religion and spirituality at this time. All of this adds up to making Jerry the ideal guest on a podcast linked to a newsletter that is in very large part about the experience of feeling as if you are in relationship with an invisible, autonomous, intelligent, creative force and source that gives direction and meaning to your life. I'll close this introduction by noting that I deliberately chose to keep my own side of the conversation you're about to hear to a minimum. I wanted to give Jerry plenty of time and room to explain his fascinating experiences and the book they ended up producing. I hope you find the story, not only of Jerry, but of the God who spoke to him, as valuable and absorbing as I do. Jerry, I really appreciate your being here with me today to have this conversation. Well, it's very good to see you, Matt Carden. I've been an admirer of yours for a long time, and you're a wonderful writer and thinker and spiritual seeker. So anyway, I'm really looking forward to this. Well, I might say the same stuff all back to you. In the introduction, I already um, spoke about the background, sort of the general gist of and the description of your God book. Before we actually start talking about that, I wanted to hear you say a little bit just about your professional and philosophical and even spiritual background, so that in your own words, uh, the people who are listening to this can get a sense of where you're coming from when you write a book that's titled God and Autobiography. Well, I grew up in a Baptist family, and I found from a very early age, you know, here I was a little emerging philosopher, (laughs) as it turned out. And I found for a very early age, the Baptist I knew, you know, the minister and and so forth, uh, didn't have very good answers for the kinds of questions I had. And so that I left behind, still was interested in the questions of mainly, uh, well, let me say one thing that, that I took away from the Baptist 
is the lesson that the state of your soul is the most important thing in life. And when I got to college and took philosophy, I found, ah, that's what Plato and Aristotle thought and other great thinkers like Spinoza and and so on. And I found you can live a very high-minded life, a life of high purpose, if you basically follow in the line of the wisest thinkers in the philosophical tradition. So I left behind not only a belief in God, but the God question. It did not preoccupy me because I found philosophy to be satisfying. You know, that's really interesting, that a transition um, like that. And um, I may have had something of a, not the same, but a similar thing where I I grew up very religious. It was in um, the first Christian church in the independent Christian church tradition, which is uh, evangelically pretty parallel in many ways to the Baptist tradition. And then I did go on to develop a strong interest in philosophy. I, I, rem- I retained my spiritual side, though. They've always kind of worked together, but it's sort of the same for me. You know, I, I think I had a training ground in being uh, sensitized to that, maybe that area that Tillich would call the, the, the uh, realm of ultimate concern that everyone has, yes. you know, that stayed with me when I went off in different directions. So I, I identify with that. I'm curious, just briefly, you know, you had um, such a background, a pretty prominent background there for a number of years in the education field. And of course, you, you were nationally known for your working with with education matters. Did any of that continue to play out in, in your work in that area too? Oh, not really. I almost left that behind. I sometimes, when I go back to Washington, D.C., which was the scene of a lot of that, because I went to National Endowment for the Humanities and did some other things, writing reports about higher education that got publicity and so forth, were discussed in the news, in the evening news. When I go back to Washington, D.C., I sometimes feel like the former Jerry Martin, because the God experience moved me so different, a chain of, of preoccupations. Uh, intense to the point that although I somewhat follow those higher education issues still, I really don't feel that's my job anymore. So it's like you had you, you for, for whatever reason, life gave you that assignment, right? And then uh, there was, there's a bit of a discontinuity because God unexpectedly appeared and gave you another assignment. Am I repeating that maybe correctly? Yes. Yes. I've always lived life for a long time with the feeling that at every given moment, you need to be doing what's most important for your life. And uh, I relate to the one line from T.S. Eliot. I'm not a great reader of poetry, but T.S. Eliot says the, the moment of death is every moment. The moment of death registers the whole meaning of your life, you might say. The, every moment registers that. And uh, I've known people who are thinking, well, at some point, I, I think I should go do something, but I'm putting it off until X, Y, Z, practical affairs And when I felt it was my time to leave academe after teaching 15 years, I'd actually satisfied the purpose for which I went into that. And it was time to make a different move. And rather than think, oh, I've got tenure, I can't give up tenure. And I have to tell you, giving up tenure is like jumping out of the plane without a parachute. But I gave up tenure, went to Washington, knowing the uncertainty. But, you know, you got to live the life you have. And when a task comes along, hey, this isn't what you should, this isn't your job anymore. There's this something else that's your job. And I think people need to pay careful attention to that. There's a big seller that's what is the purpose-driven life or something. 
But you know, you got to find your purpose, and your purpose, in my view now, is not just what comes out of someone giving you some um, career tests the way they used to do in high school. You know, you'd be good at X, Y, Z, but it's uh, a call from from higher than that, and you have to listen for that call, which every minister I understand is supposed to do. They're not supposed to think this is a good career for me. They're supposed to actually have a call. A divine call. And that's a, that's a good way for all of us to live. You recall that when you and I first met, I had just started, I forget whether I was just conceiving or had just recently started writing my former blog, gone for some years now, uh, Demon Muse, you know, which, which, uh, which then I turned into um, the book, A Course in Demonic Creativity. And uh, in, in researching the posts and all that kind of thing, I came upon your website, where you were talking about uh, this book, and that's how we connected, was over this specific topic of having a sense of spiritual calling, something calling to you, something gravitationally pulling you, saying, this is your mission right now. So when you talk about that, that takes me right back to the, to the beginnings of our acquaintance and friendship, you know? It was actually an inner voice. And as I recall, you found that particularly arresting, that sometimes one has a voice in one's head, you know, it comes to you as if it's from somewhere outside your head. I just had my experience. You were studying it in, you know, Socrates had a voice and so forth. The daimon, he used the same, that term is from the Greek that you were using. And that that's a fascinating phenomenon. Though I was not studying it, I was just living it. And that's what I, that's exactly where I knew we would get. What happened? How did this whole thing come about? The basics is that I was divorced for many years, thought I'd be happier married if if Miss Wright would come along, but Miss Wright had not come along. But she one day called me on the phone. Hi, this is Abigail Rosenthal at Brooklyn College. Can you help us? I said, yes, that's what we do. From that point on, we talked almost every day, never meeting in person. I was Washington, D.C. She was New York City. But I fell in love, sight unseen on the phone. She could have looked like anything. I was, I was in love. And people talk about conversions. If I had a conversion to anything, it was a conversion to love. Because I had not believed in romantic love. I thought I was looking for compatibility. But what came to me was knock your on the floor, you know, hit you on the head, knock you out love, just took everything and just a breathless. And I thought, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> then I went to study it, and the experts all poo-poo it. Okay, well, they're wrong. It's supposed to be passing. And it passes in a few months. Well, mine's been 20 years now. <laughs> it has not passed. But that, it was such a wonderful gift. My life went from black and white to technicolor. And I, I felt I've got to say gratitude. I don't know where it came from. I know I, I didn't make it up. I didn't achieve this. So I literally fell to my knees as I'd been taught as a child and said a prayer of gratitude to the Lord. I didn't know what Lord. I didn't have any beliefs, maybe just a benign universe. The universe smiled on me that day. Uh, And then I did it again. And then on a third occasion, uh, we had the problem living in two cities. We wanted to make a life together. How are we going to solve this? So I prayed for guidance again without having changed any of my beliefs. But I said a prayer asking for a solution. And first, a kind of confirming vision occurred of a rising, sparkling, multicolored fountain, you know, kind of like a hologram a few feet in front of me. 
And I, I suppose in the old days, they would have called it a vision. And that was kind of remarkable. And I thought, well, that's a kind of answer. You know, okay, just go forward. Things will work out. But then a voice spoke. And I knew it wasn't me talking. So I said, who is this? And the answer came, I am God. Well, I didn't know about much about religion because that had not been an interest of mine. But I knew there were a lot of religions. And therefore, in a sense, there were many gods. And so I just asked, again, drawing on my background, the God of Israel? And the answer came back, I am the God of all. Well, I didn't ponder that framing at that time. That could mean many different things. I just thought, wow, there is a God. But then, you know, I'm in, I'm in my field in, in philosophy is epistemology. What epistemologists do is ask, do you really know what you think you know? And if so, how? Doubt has been at the center of the Western project of philosophy from Socrates on. That's why he ended up on the dock and, and taking the hemlock. He's running around asking everybody, asking the judge, do you know what justice is? And after a series of questions, no, the judge doesn't know what justice is, and so on. Well, philosophers are trained to question things, and this certainly deserved to be questioned. Nothing would be easier to be mistaken about than hearing the, a, a voice that's a divine voice. The people on the street corner holding signs, the world's going to end Friday, think they're hearing from God, right? And then I looked, looked next and figured, well, how do you decide? How do you figure out something like this? If I hear the voice of God, how do I figure out whether it probably is the voice of God or surely is not the voice of God? And so I called a friend of mine who teaches at a religious college, Calvin College, a philosopher friend, and asked him. And he said, oh, that's the problem of spiritual discernment. So I learned, oh, it has a name. And then I found there's a huge literature going all the way back. I was mainly looking at the Christian tradition. Uh, in other traditions, it's often handled by your guru and that kind of thing. But uh, there's a literature. Uh, St. Ignatius is one of the most famous, but Jonathan Edwards and, and many others. A very interesting, illuminating work. I looked at some recent people, Romano Guardini. I'm not a Catholic in background, but uh, Guardini wrote a very good book on prayer, uh, Gordini includes a discussion of this very kind of experience where he says, you know, you're used to praying and everything, and normally there's kind of a wall between you and the divine. One day the wall isn't there. God is present to you. You talk to others, they have not had this experience. They doubt it. So what do you do? Well, the story goes on from there, what you do. Mm -hmm. What you do is is you end up having... A series of dialogues, right? Where you, I don't want to use the word interrogate, but you you have, uh, not, and also not to steal this, the, the title of another famous work that you briefly mention and then leave behind in your book, you have some conversations with God and you end up writing them down and you end up with this book that is titled God, an autobiography as told to a philosopher, which is uh, audacious to say the least. And I think you know uh, that I, very much appreciated. I think I told you when I wrote a review of it on Amazon, that was, was that the first or the second review that I had ever written for any book. I don't think I've even written a review since that one. <laughs> I, I, I think the only thing other than Legati. Yeah. 
That's right. I think you're right. Something in that zone. Yes. What have been like from the beginning and then also going on, what have been some of the ways uh, people have responded? You mentioned the one a philosopher friend, you know, at Calvin College, right, that you contacted who said, oh, that's spiritual discernment. What has been the spectrum of responses that people have had when you have revealed this to them and begun to have these conversations about your conversations with God? Well, different responses. Uh, my best friend in the philosophy department at Boulder, where I taught for many years, teaches philosophy of religion, but is not a believer. He's almost someone who wishes he could believe, but his, his rational side defeats belief. Uh, but I, I called him, and I was thinking, oh, he's going to think, poor Jerry, he's gone daft, <laughs> you know? And people would be saying, do you hear what happened to Jerry Martin? Oh, no. <laughs> you know. But no, he suggested I read William James, The Will to Believe. And that's a fine essay. All of your listeners should go read William James, The Will to Believe. Uh, it's very worth pondering. And uh, it, it, uh, I went on from there. But different people, I, I thought I would... I, I told people at my old organization that I was running on higher education, you can take me off the web page, you know, just delete any references to the history, to my role in, in the organization or its founding or anything. But they actually didn't respond that way. They responded in different ways, but some who's an atheist friend said, well, this makes you more interesting. And I thought, well, I didn't know I'd been boring. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you know, this makes you more interesting. And uh, he actually did a better summary of the book than I've ever encountered elsewhere. He said it's a revelation about revelations. A very good few-word few phrase for it. I was given the title, God in Autobiography and Prayer. I thought it was over the top, but I was told that's the name of the book. Okay. Uh, but I added, as told to a philosopher, we don't have God on a microphone or on film. So, okay, this is my report. Of, of God's story as told to me. What I found was that God continued to answer my questions. The prayer didn't stop with that one scene. Sometimes God would speak to me when I was not praying or asking any questions. Other times, well, I was a philosopher, and I thought, if I've got God on the line, I've got a lot of questions, and here's my chance. And so I was asking all the fundamental questions, some about just how to live life, some, of course, quite personal, uh, others, big philosophical questions, meaning of life questions. What's the big story? And the big story, in a way, is the story of God. That's why it's an autobiography. There's a chapter on creation that I found very disturbing because I grew up with Genesis and it didn't quite sound like Genesis. It was didn't sound like anything I had ever read elsewhere, but it's very striking, and it seems that God comes into being with the world. It's not that God is sitting there in eternal serenity, I guess, uh, self-satisfaction, I don't know, and then decides, oh, let's create a world, and then I'll go poof, or create it in some days. No, God and the world start together and one of the deep metaphysical messages is God is both same and other as us. God is both same and other as the world. And it's both are real. People who say that sort of thing usually end up with the part that's the same as being real. And the otherness is an illusion. But the God story I'm told is that both are equally real 
and both are essential. And the uh, otherness side is essential for relationship. I don't want to be my wife. I want to love her and have her love me. Ramakrishna, the great Hindu saint, said, I want to taste the sweetness, not be the sugar. And I very much resonate to that kind of quote. In, in my life, relationships are more important than identities. But people see it differently, and both sides are equally true uh, in God and Autobiography. The, the, fact that, the fact that the whole experience of that book coming into being uh, came from your uh, unexpected discovery of love, right? That seems to slide right into that uh, that core theme of the of the relational aspect of themes that shows up in the book when I hear you talk about it. Yeah, and that's part of it. We each have our own story, and God comes to us in different ways. And what God in Autobiography shows by God's talking to me is that God is showing different sides of God's self into different cultures. At one point, I was called read the foundational, the ancient foundational scriptures of different traditions, including going back to the ancient Egyptians and all kinds of stuff, and pray about them. And basically, the question was, God, what were you up to with these ancient Egyptians? What were you up to with these, that, and the other? God was present in all, showed different sides of himself, so the religions don't all say the same thing, and the, because God didn't show the same side of the divine to all, all of them, God explains to me why that's the case. It would have been too much to flood everybody with all the truths of all the different religions. And even now, today, it'd be, it's hard to take them all in, in their full diversity and range. But that was, that's the story of God, that he's showing himself through the different traditions. And you can take that down to the individual level through our lives, you know, mine was a story of relationship, as you point out, Matt. Others have very different starting points for their spiritual journeys and their connection to the divine. They don't all call it God. That's fine. Those are their sides that aren't personal, after all. And um, I think another striking thing from the book that I should mention, from what I was told, is that God is not perfect. God totally rejects that concept and says it doesn't even make sense. And we all know in the theological tradition, it mainly produces a lot of paradoxes. Can God create the stone too heavy for God to lift? You know, you get these kinds of, can God make right wrong and wrong right? Can God change the truths of mathematics to be the opposite? And, and so on. And so that's the omnipotence one. The omnibenevolence one is also wrong, and God is a divided personality. This would fit, I think, closer to, to your aspect of things, the things you look at, Matt. At one point, I was led to Zoroaster, and there God is presented, you might say, as having two sides, presented as two gods, but they really seem to be two different aspects of the one God. And, and there's kind of a good side and a bad side, and I'm told... It's mainly not that God is, has an evil side or anything like that, but it's a, it's a problem of integration. And an awful lot of the bad things we do in life as people is, come from lack of integration. We don't have our different parts lined up. Even disease is a lack of integration. 
you know, some body part is run off on its own, doing too much of something or too little of something uh, for the welfare of the whole organism. Well, our personalities are like that. It's very hard for them to be integrated in a balanced, functional way and a, a way that works out benignly for our lives and the lives of those affected by us. And God is like that. And God is moving forward, is developing. Uh, one of the first things I was told is, I, mean, I, I am an evolving God. And I had no idea what that could mean. I just kept praying and taking it down. <laughs> you know, sometimes I would argue. And, and that would clarify things. Sometimes I'd be satisfied with God's answer, sometimes not. But God's developing. And how is God developing? God is developing mainly through interaction with us. And I often think of the story of, of uh, Abraham, who had immediately done what God told him without question, got up the next morning to take his son off to the mountain. But when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm going to wipe them all out because there's some bad folks there. Abraham argues, wait, wait, wait. And it's almost, remember who you are. Remember what your job description is. You're supposed to be the, the definer and emblem and, and paragon of justice. And would this be just if there if they're good people there? And they have a back and forth argument. And Abraham kind of wins, you might say, argues God, well, if there are just a few <laughs> good people, then I'll spare the city for their sake. Of course, then it, I've always noticed in my reading of that story, you know, it, it uh, woke up a few years ago to it and went, and yet, uh, if there was uh, even just one good person, the idea was that it would have been Lot, Abraham's nephew. And so the other two figures that showed up with Yahweh to talk with Abraham there at the tents go down there and rather than sparing the city, they take Lot and his daughters out and then God goes ahead and destroys the city. <laughs> but in a way, the Old Testament is a good story of God's development and God's lights and darknesses. And uh, I don't know if we see God evolving. One could probably tell the story of the Old Testament in that way, but God is, seems to be learning something. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, that's the the story of God in autobiography, is that God is learning through interacting with us. Of course, we're learning through interacting with God. One of the things in the book that really struck me was that, you know, it, it, uh, it shows up as this as this dialogue, you know, and you introduce it at the beginning. You, you explain kind of like you explained here where the origin of this and then it becomes the uh, the record, the transcript of this conversation between you and God. And then scattered throughout, you have these really able 
short, compressed profiles or summaries of uh, different world religious traditions. And I found that to be really interesting and really valuable. And in fact, at the time, uh, I was teaching uh, once a semester a class on world religions at the college where I was working. And I extracted and used three or four of those. It seemed like the, the one that you wrote about Buddhism, for instance, was one of the best uh, versions to present to some college undergraduates who who were interested in the subject, but might have a short attention span or might not just be ready to dive into a full textbook chapter, you know. And I took those things out and presented to them. I found that to be really interesting. You know, you've talked about God presenting God's self to different cultures in different ways. And then in the book, there are these sections that pause and say, well, here is a, a profile of, of uh, truth of God as appearing in history in this certain cultural environment as Buddhism or as Judaism or as Christianity. It's been a little while since I read the book. I don't remember. Did that come from what you were hearing from God or did that come uh, more from your side as things to you thought that this would help add context or how did that come about? It seems like about 85, 90 percent of the book is really God talking. And the conversations were all over the place, but I then regrouped them. <laughs> I kind of tried to keep the same chronological order, but all the parts that had been prayed on different times about, say, Hinduism, I kind of grouped together, but keeping the chronological order within Hinduism. And I thought the reader doesn't know what I've been reading. I mean, I was told to read the scriptures and then pray about them. The, the uh, reader hasn't read those scriptures, presumably, or hasn't read particular things I've read. And so I thought, I've got to bring the reader up to speed so enough so they can understand what it is we're talking about. But And I first wrote them longer. So they started looking like Wikipedia, and I thought, no, this is overkill. They don't need that. This is not a textbook on world religions. They need to know just enough to understand then what's being said. Just enough to give context to the conversation. Exactly. You also have a podcast. I know that you've, that has been popular, that has been developed from this, uh, from the book, and that you also, uh, you produce uh, with Scott Langdon, right? What can you say briefly about what that is? Well, Scott, when I hired for help with uh, media, uh, social media, it turned out to be an actor. And when he read God in Autobiography, it struck him as dramatic. We even considered trying to make it into a play. But I thought, now then you're going to have an actor and it's not going to look unreal. But audio is different. And so what he did with his creativity, and we worked together, create, uh, pull out the dramatic episodes of me encountering God and having these discussions with God. And he plays Jerry Martin, and I read what God said as, as I heard it. And then we've had follow-ups, because by then we had followers uh, going back and discussing the various ideas uh, in different contexts. You've said a lot about what's in the book and described how it came about. The content is obviously very depthful. And as you say, it, it gives a different view of God uh, in many ways than, than what many people are used to thinking and hearing about. How, how, what do you think are the implications for this right now for religion and for people's understanding of God and for people's engagement with God? And I also want to bring up the term, uh, the Theology Without Walls Project, because that's something that's been a major 
outgrowth an ongoing project from your your God communications and your God book? What can you say about those things? Yes, they're very good questions, Matt. My agent wanted me to put the term as revealed to a philosopher. And in my own view, that would not be inaccurate. I take these to be revelations. And I didn't want to, it would sound arrogant, I thought. I'm a modest person, in fact. And I don't think any of this has to do with the wonderfulness of Jerry Martin. What God is doing in the world is what we're tracking here. It's, it's a, as my friend said, a revelation about revelations that would have been untimely a hundred years ago, maybe even 50 years ago. We now live in a world where we don't grow up in a neighborhood where everyone has the same religion and goes to the same church. And you know, there, that was a typical pattern around the globe until recently. Now, we're all, I, I'm sometimes surprised to find somebody I'm talking with on some internet forum or something. Oh, he's a China, he's Chinese in, in Hong Kong. And you wouldn't know it because everyone in the world seems to have learned wonderful English. But it's a time where everyone's aware of multiple religions, especially in America, where they can be down the street. You can have a half dozen major religious traditions, including Eastern traditions, just in your town, much less available on internet. And so this is a major opportunity. One of the things I'm told at the end is that it's the head of the last chapter of the book is about the new axial age, the first axial age, which uh, the philosopher Carl Jaspers talked about, was this remarkable period of a few hundred years during which, in a way, all the great figures of enlightenment popped up, you know, from Socrates to the Buddha, a worldwide in different cultures, uh, some earlier than that particular time span, some a little later, but it's a remarkable change in culture. And what it did was raise spirituality and life reflection, because some were philosophers and other kinds of thinkers, Confucius, for example, raise human consciousness to a whole new level. And that basically is how the world's religions got started, because some of them became the, the, uh, the key figures in one or another religious tradition, some others key figures in philosophical or, or other wisdom traditions. We now live in a world where we know so much that it's really time to start learning from each other and to think bigger. You know, God is bigger than any of our religious traditions. God, including the impersonal, you know, I don't mean to, because I have an, a theist experience, mean to exclude any, any vision that reaches in different directions, because they're all aspects of the divine. And we can now take them all in. And in doing theology, this means don't just theologize in terms of your own tradition. And this is a hard sell. You know, I went to American Academy of Religion, started, started getting to know people. It's not my field at all. Everybody in the room knows more about religion than I do. You know, they've studied this their whole lives. It's often reading in original languages and so forth. But they've learned theology. In systematic theology, Paul Tillich defines theology as the interpretation of the Lutheran tradition for our times. <laughs> so it's the current version, you know, in a form responsive to the concerns of the day. Uh, okay, <laughs> but that's pretty limited, isn't it? And this is what this is what they know how to do. All these wonderful theologians and religious studies scholars. But we need to take one huge step beyond it 
beyond just what they call confessional theology, the theology one's own, and take in the larger picture. And to my surprise, in spite of the challenge, this has struck a responsive chord. And we published a volume with 20-some essays called Theology Without Walls, the Trans-Religious Imperative, the imperative to go beyond one's own religion. And I always keep urging them, and don't just look at religion, look at literature and psychology. Your Greek tragedy has a lot to tell you about the human condition and, and fate and you know these major questions that religions deal with. So look broadly and take it all into one's understanding. And that is flourishing, I would say, as a project. How would you think? How would you say this is novel, or this is different from some of the original um, ecumenical movements? You know, we, the ecumenical movement in the in the 20th century was really within Christianity. You know, uh, trying trying to bridge uh, walls between different denominations and walls between Protestants and Catholics and that kind of thing. And I also wanted to ask uh, how how might this depart from or be different from like some of the original project of, of uh, religious pluralism in theology that arose in, uh, in conjunction with the likes of, say, John Hick, to name one one um, theologian uh, whose works I really appreciated. Like, I think it was God in the Universe of Faiths was one of his famous book titles, you know, mid-late 20th century. There's Hick and several others associated with him, several of them coming from different religious traditions. He was from the Christian tradition, I believe, uh, who was it that was coming from uh, Hinduism? They were saying some of the same thing. Hick famously talked about the need for what he called a Copernican revolution in uh, religion, saying we've all been thinking about, um, you know, we're in our separate traditions. We're centered around whatever it is central to our tradition. We need to recontextualize all of the great world religious and spiritual traditions as being mutually centered around some common or just the way that, uh, you know, the Copernican idea took the Earth uh, away from being the center of the universe and said, no, all the planets uh, orbit the sun. How, how, with what you're talking about with theology without walls, how does that either build on that or depart from it? Let me mention both of those, the ecumenical movement and a lot of what happens on campuses where they emphasize interfaith dialogue and that kind of thing. Wonderful activities. But the goal of those activities is not theological. It's to understand each other. And on the hope and assumption that if we understand each other, you know, we'll give up little cliches that are negative and, and stereotypes and so forth and, and get along better, certainly get along in a more informative way. But it's not a theological project. It's not. In fact, they often set the rule is you got to accept everybody's <laughs> truth as final, you know, not challenge it. Well, that's any live theology is going to be challenging certain ideas. Hick, I think I agree with your admiration. It's extraordinary what he achieved and moving pluralism to the front and the, the uh, reconceptualizing. What is the center of it all? And reality with a capital R is what he puts at the center of it all. The um, problem with Hick is, as many of these nice people, they really want all the religions to sort of say the same thing. What Hick does is to kind of discount where they say different things and to emphasize things like ethical norms. They all believe there's something more important than the material. And he also, I remember he also wanted to emphasize and say the creeds, the great Christian creeds, um, he said, which, which basically everybody, uh, every, every of the major theologians who ever devoted their lives to explicating those would disagree with. He said, no, they should be read as poetry. They're not prose. 
their poetry. And, and I think they would say, no, we're actually making truth statements about reality. There was a bit of a disjunction there. Yeah, that's, I think that's exactly right, Matt, that uh, the people in the tradition say, wait a minute, you know, what you're discounting is what's important to us. You know, my Jewish wife lives by the covenant, and she's not living by it as poetry. And I know I gave a talk to the Eric Vogelin Society, which I said at the end, God is not a metaphor. You know, in my view, God is quite real, a palpitating reality, really relating to us and caring about us. I think one of the major thrusts of God in autobiography, and surprise to me, is that God is so intensely personal. And it's hard for people to understand that. God cares what you're going to do today, <laughs> you know, what Matt's going to do and what Jerry is going to do. And the answer is, well, yes. And that's in a lot of the drama of life. You're never alone. God is always with you. And that also means if you're doing something wrong, God's noticing. See, when you say, when you say that, obviously, um, the, the, the exact language that you just used to describe that would be entirely speakable by any evangelical Christian. And that's been one of the hallmarks, you know, of evangelicalism within modern uh, Christianity in the West. Catholics wouldn't say that. And uh, mainline Protestants wouldn't say that. It's only really your evangelicals who are acting like God is right there and cares about every last thing right down to, uh, did you get that parking spot? So when you talk about it like that, I mean, it just occurs to me, well, you're speaking a language in a way that there's one group that one wouldn't think might here are some of the things you're saying and that are in this book uh, with anything but suspicion. And yet there you are. So you're describing God in a way that they're very, very familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is familiar. And of course, that's part of my background growing up in a, in a Baptist connection. The Baptists read the Old Testament. These are real people to them. <laughs> they, they just relate to it wholeheartedly. But there is more of this in other traditions than we readily notice. The textbook version of Hinduism, for example, emphasizes the unity aspect. Mm-hmm. Atman is Brahman and that. And that's a kind of major tradition, uh, maybe the dominant uh, tradition in some sense, but it's not actually the dominant one in, in Hindu religious life, what they call bhakti, devotion. And you're devoted to a particular god, and you may see those gods as all aspects of Brahman, something larger, but but you're devoted to one of them, and that's concrete. And you even, Diana Eck has, has, has described this in one of her writers, seeing the, at a Hindu temple, the Hindu priest playing with Krishna. <laughs> no child's toys. They have stories of Krishna as a, growing up as a child in the way that we don't. And she says, huh, we've kind of left something out in Christianity. What was it like to be the six-year-old Jesus? So, but but you're right. This is a, a, I call it shockingly personal view of God, but I think it's the right one. And I think it's deeply meaningful for our lives, and it's a good one to get in line with. If God is there caring what you do, then you better try to do the right thing and try to live up to your highest God-given purpose. Speaking of all of those things, uh, deeply personal, your highest purpose, I want to ask you for your thoughts, your insights, your suspicions about the nature of divine communication. As you know, uh, I I did write uh, that blog and then turned it into the book, A Course in Demonic Creativity, which is subtitled 
a writer's guide to the inner genius. And my point in there was to look at the ancient Western idea of the daimon or the genius or the demon as uh, the locus of the uh, the artists or the poets, you know, creativity. And uh, I really delved into the experience, the experiential aspect of feeling like to a greater or lesser degree, or in some form or other, if you were a writer, especially, but really any creative or a thinker or a theologian, you are in contact with what feels like an autonomous, separate intelligence. And I use the uh, the metaphor of the daimon, especially uh, because it's so it's so perfect. Because you know the ancient view of the daimon uh, is that it it uh, one 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 major view that emerged from the whole Platonic daimonic tradition was that. It is the intermediary between the individual and the gods that each individual is born with a daimon given and that that daimon represents the person's individual divinely implanted life plan and character and set of predispositions. And it even constellates situations around a person, events, and bring out this character and, and sort of this mission that was given for this living of this life by the gods. Now, that is distinct, obviously, from the idea of having a, divine, a conversation with uh, God, but still the very idea of this spiritual communication with what for all the world just vividly presents itself and seems to be and feels like a separate intelligence that you aren't thinking these thoughts. You know, this is coming to you. Those cross over right there and obviously they're deeply intertwined. You're somebody who has been very forthright in this conversation and also for years through the book and through the, the speaking and other things you've done and saying, this happened to you, came out of nowhere, you never expected it. So I think you're somebody whose who's thoughts and opinions and maybe wisdom about um, dealing with this kind of thing or understanding this kind of thing, both for people who've never had it and maybe want it or maybe don't want it, or maybe you're skeptical about it. And for those who have it and are seeking for better understanding, I think your general thoughts about just kind of what's going on about this and what's important about it. What, what is it? What does it mean? That could be helpful. So that's, I want to just toss that over to you. Yeah. In my view and my experience, God connects with us in many ways. And one of the primary ways is through a kind of inner voice or inner sense. Sometimes it's just a feeling in your organic feeling, in your body, you get a settled feeling or an unsettled feeling. Uh, how does the voice of conscience work? Well, it's kind of disturbs you, right? <laughs> and it doesn't have to be a voice. We use that expression because it's kind of like a voice because you suddenly know, oh, don't go there. <laughs> you know, stop. This would be wrong. And the voice of God is a lot like that. I have, you asked a while ago, Matt, about how people have reacted. One reaction has been hearing from people who say, well, I've tried and tried and tried, prayed and prayed, prayed, Lord, speak to me, speak to me, speak to me. I don't hear a thing. And I tell them, just let God come to you, however God comes to you. Let God decide that. <laughs> don't be trying to think, oh, it's got to be this one way. Uh, that always seems to me a mistake. No, no, you're, you're, for one thing, you're not in charge here. You know, you're an instrument. Open, keep your instrumentality open to experience and attuned to things, and then look for however it comes. It can be external. I ask a guy, well, how did he know that he had received a, a call to be a minister? Well, the same week, three different people said to him, hey, you should be a minister. 
Sometimes it's in something someone says to us. We need to be open to that. And then the advice I give to people is, A, pay attention, pay careful attention. The instrument of divine communication, I don't think it's just the brain or the mind even, uh, it's the whole person, the whole body. We're embodied beings moving in a world. And it's the whole person, so pay attention to everything going on. It can be a task in your path. If so, you got to recognize it. My wife, Abigail, often says it takes two to make a miracle, God to do it, the person to recognize it. Well, you've got to pay attention. God can throw everything at you. And if you're not paying attention, or if your doubting carries your scoffing to such a point that you're in, you, you block off things that are actually available to you, then you're missing out. You're missing out. But once you do pay attention, then accept it however it comes. And, and I with... I used to not believe in coincidences and all this kind of thing, what Jung calls synchronicities. Now, almost anything that happens that's sort of out of the ordinary, like a problem taking getting a train, I stop. Is this a sign that I'm not I'm supposed to not take this train to this place? And so I ask the question. It's very hard to figure out these things. But I've come to think the key, there's a tradition in philosophy and epistemology of recent vintage, although it goes back to Aristotle, called virtue epistemology. The real problems of knowledge are not like Cartesian doubt and brains and vats and some of these extreme scenarios, but it's really, am I being trusting enough or too trusting? Am I gullible? Do I need to, am I doing due diligence on what the facts are? Am I open-minded, but not so open-minded that I can't make any decision or come to any resolution? And these are all like other virtues. There's a kind of golden mean. You kind of balance your openness with your decisiveness because you got to make a judgment. And uh, and how conscientious do you have to be? You know, what is due diligence, as the lawyers call it? Does it stop, you know, that you've checked things out as best you can? And the other thing I've come to as an epistemologist is the epistemics of trust, I call it. All knowledge begins not with doubt. Descartes is precisely wrong about that. All knowledge, you don't get knowledge if you start there unless you bring in a deus ex machina, which is exactly what he does. Knowledge starts with trust. You believe in experience, you trust experience, you correct it by usually checking it against other experiences. You trust reason, you check reason out by reasoning, you know, and you correct the mistakes in reasoning by reasoning and, of course, by the other things you trust. And so that, that tends to be true with each of our epistemic faculties, including our apprehensions of the divine. If you trust them, you can learn something. If you don't trust them, it's going to be hard to learn anything. If you trust them, at least you can explore them, check them out, see if they hold up. You know, is this voice telling me to be an axe murderer? Well, the literature <laughs> on spiritual discernment say that probably is not a divine voice. But uh, if it's telling me to love my wife, well, that sounds like a divine prompting, doesn't it? But anyway, you don't settle it just by whether you like the advice or the advice sounds good, but you pay careful attention and you process it. And that's why, because we are the, we human beings are the instrumentality of God's communications. And you always have, have to have your instruments working well to get truth. Uh, I, I've started talking about the, what you need as a clarified soul. You need to understand what your own motives are. 
I find if I'm praying for about a course of action, one of the courses, you know, action A or action B, and I really, really don't want to do action B, I can't pray effectively. <laughs> what I have to really do is step back, take a deep breath, and get to that point where it's quite, it's actually true that, okay, if God tells me to do B, I'll do B. That's fine. I have to get to that point, and then at that point, I can ask without having a big thumb on the scales of what the answer is going to be. I can let it come in. Well, that's one aspect of the clarified soul, is just to have your own self in order, your own appetites, your own ego, your own passions, your own situation. If you don't be too afraid of what somebody's going to think of you, which was a challenge I faced, you have to live through these with a uh, with the kind of... Another word would be a high degree of personal integrity, just being honest with yourself and truthful to yourself and honest and truthful with others. What you're saying there, of course, goes back to many centuries worth of, I think, what Houston Smith might have referred to as the winnowed wisdom of the human race. It's kind of it's kind of doesn't ring very well sometimes on some modern years. Obviously, it's not good to paint with too big of a brush, too broad of a brush. Doesn't but it, but some of the um what can strike people because of a certain differently attuned ear the past, oh, several decades or a couple hundred years as uh, too puritanical or something like that uh, actually lines up right there with what you're saying about that clarified soul, the, 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 uh, the tuning and the, the internal state and calibration of the instrument definitely has uh, perhaps almost everything to do with whether the instrument is capable of receiving and doing what it's meant to do. And then once you feel you've got to that point in a given situation, then you trust it and go with it. Put your whole heart into it, but always reflectively. It should never be blind trust, but you do it reflectively. And, and you keep cleansing <laughs> this uh, clarified soul because there's always uh, pollution comes in, you might say. It's not puritanical because it doesn't have that structure of discount of being down on the body. I'm totally up on the body, you might say. Uh, I think there's wisdom in the whole person, as I was saying, not just in in the intellectual aspect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Since we're talking about the soul, I want to close on this. I want to quote lines from a famous poem that you will recognize, everyone will recognize, and then I want to ask you a question about it. The poem is um, those famous, one might almost say those immortal lines by Henley from Invictus. Uh, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Would Jerry Martin, prior to that first God experience, the holographic fountain, the voice announcing itself as God, and Jerry Martin after that inflection point and all that came from it, respond uh, differently and have a different view of the claim, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You know, people sometimes ask me how this has changed me. And and my simple answer, because this first thing that comes to my mind is I'm nicer in traffic now. I don't have to be the first one there. And it's because before, you might say my ego, my self-interest, my self-preoccupations were the most important thing. That changed in part by falling in love. And then God trumps those. So I, my, my soul, <laughs> in, this, in this willful sense, 
is uh, is not what's um, number one on the list anymore. And when I when Abigail answers that question, how have I changed? Uh, because this happened after we were together. It's I have less. I'm less willful now. And men are very prone to a kind of almost pig-headed willfulness. And in some certain circumstances, that's how they succeed in doing something. Maybe they need it to be a hard-driving, effective businessman or Steve Jobs to build an empire. I don't know. It may have its place. But the place is rather far away from our tender dealings with one another and the course of one's life. Uh, you do have to be willing to surrender something. And, you know, I don't know if this change, I left a wonderful career. Will this change work out well for me? Who cares? I'm doing, I'm doing what is, I can best discern it. I'm doing what I ought to do. And I'm doing something that I don't quite normally think of as God's will in the sense of thunderbolts coming down saying what God's will is. But I'm, it's more like in sync. At one point, God said, don't think of it as soldiers following orders. Think of it as doing a duet together. And I'm trying to live my life as a duet with God. Well, that's kind of beautiful. The uh, record of the conversation in the book, as you well know, is something that I deeply appreciate. And really appreciate your having the conversation with me today. It's great to... It's great to rehook up with you uh, by means of this conversation. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you, Matt. This has been The Living Dark, created and hosted by Matt Carden, who also composed and performed the music. For show notes and additional content, visit the Living Dark website at mattcarden.substack.com.